Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of life My name is Bill Real. I'm a faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I've been a member for 20 plus years. Today, this program that I'm recording has likely been shared with you by somebody you love and care about who is struggling with their membership in the church. It's my hope today that you can hear me as I share why this individual is struggling, why they're having a hard time, and why their faith seems to be changing. Let me start by telling you a little bit about myself. I joined the church when I was 17 years old. I'm 38 years old today. When I joined the church, I joined because I found a a wonderful young lady who I began dating, and we ended up getting married in the Washington, D.C. temple for time and all eternity. Over time, I had the opportunity to serve in lots of church callings. And at the age of 29, I was called to serve as a bishop of the Sandusky Ward, Cleveland, Ohio stake of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In the middle of that time of serving as a bishop for the LDS Church, I had what I could only call a crisis of faith. So many factors played into that church history, social issues, things that leaders had said and done. My heart was ripped out. It was a painful time. Many nights were spent crying. Many nights were spent upset, frustrated, sad, angry, trying to make sense of it. Eventually, I was able to reconcile those differences. And today, I'm proud to say I'm still a faithful uh, member of the church with two callings, a temple recommend, and I attend every week. Today, I hope to share with you what it is that your loved one is going through, some of what they're struggling with, and to hope and pray that you can extend to them some empathy and some understanding, some compassion, and most importantly, a safe space to have conversations. To set this conversation up, I need to share with you a few quotes from church leaders. The first one is from Stephen Snow, General Authority, member of the 70, who holds the position, General Authority position of church historian. He stated, quote, My view is that being open about our history solves a whole lot more problems than it creates. We might not have all the answers, but if we are open and we now have pretty remarkable transparency, then I think in the long run that will serve us well. I think in the past there was a tendency to keep a lot of the records closed, or at least not give access to information, but the world has changed in the last generation. With access to information on the internet, we can't continue that pattern. I think we need to continue to be more open. And I think it's important to to hear and to validate what Stephen Snow is saying, church historian. He's saying, look, as a church, we used to withhold a lot of information. We didn't tell our membership everything that was out there. But the Internet has changed the game. And because of the Internet, we need to be more open and more transparent. And we're doing a pretty good job of that now. But we also could continue, and he thinks that they need to, continue to be more open. In other words, there's still information that's being withheld. that's not being shared openly. My hope today is that you can recognize that. And and I I, I say this from the most sincere depths of my soul that, that I went to church for 20 years. 
served in leadership callings, went every week, and and understood the church and its history very well. I would I would honestly say that what we learn in the three hour block, what we learn about our church's theology, how it's handled social issues, and what lies there in our history, I would guess in my twenty years, only going off of what was said by others in the three hour block, I'd be lucky if I if I discovered one to three or four percent of what is out there about those things. And so the church is now trying to be more open. And, and essentially there is a entire story, an entire narrative, an entire way in which leaders handled issues in the conversations that occurred and the things both good and bad that have occurred in our history were never made known to the saints in official ways. And so today they're trying to do that. The second quote is from Marlon K. Jensen. Marlon K. Jensen was the previous church historian and a member of the first quorum of the 70. I can tell you that in the middle of my faith crisis, I wrote Elder Holland. And Elder Holland kindly uh, handed Marlon Jensen a note, which I still have. And Marlon Jensen, in that note, was asked by Elder Holland to kindly reach out to me and to see if he could help me through what we called this crisis of faith. Over the course of time, Marlon Jensen also spoke to me by telephone uh, and by email, uh, working to try and help me resolve some of my concerns. I should also add that a few months later, Elder Holland reached out to me as well, and him and I talked by both phone and email, trying to resolve my concerns. I have a lot of love in my heart for, El- for Elder Marlon K. Jensen, uh, and for Elder Holland as well. This is what Marlon K. Jensen said, uh, Elder Marlon K. Jensen, at a address to a group of college kids at the Utah State University. And I shouldn't say kids, but young adults at the Utah State University. And, and essentially, he was asked a question about the effect that Google is having on the church. And he starts talking about those who are having a hard time with the information that is coming out that is true information. I should say, too, that's the other issue. Like, I totally validate that there is false information out there about the church. And there are lots of people who will say and quote things that are not accurate. And so there certainly is anti-Mormon information that is untruthful and deceptive. But I want to be clear that throughout this program today, that's not what we're talking about. And I think you'll see that we can show that by using LDS.org. I want you to understand the real issues that your loved one is struggling with that are real, they're authentic, they're valid, they, they're historical facts. And, and it's how we kind of shape these and recognize these and where we learn these that often makes a huge difference. And having a safe space to talk about these things is one of the key elements to working through this. So Elder Marlon K. Jensen, he says, often in the church, when someone comes in with a bit of a prickly question, he'll be met with a bishop who, number one, doesn't know the answer. Number two, he snaps and says, get in line, don't question the prophet, and get back to doing your home teaching. And this is not helpful in most cases. So we need to educate our leaders better, I think, to be sympathetic and empathetic, to and to draw out these people, where they are coming from, and what's brought them to the point that they are at what they have read, what they are thinking is, and try to understand them. 
Sometimes that alone is enough to help someone through a hard time. But beyond that, I think we really need to figure out a way to live a little bit with people who may never get completely settled. Now, again, I just want to take a moment and just re-emphasize what, what Elder Jensen here is saying. He's saying, look, number one, don't tell people to read more, pray more, get in line, do check the boxes of the gospel. These people are trying to do that. He's saying better, the better thing we could do is just to sit with them, just to listen to them, give them a chance to share with us what we're struggling with and not be defensive, to try and not feel threatened. I I get it. Like our beliefs, they're important to us. They help us to form our identity. They make us who we are. And these beliefs, especially these beliefs around our faith, they're, they're sacred to us. And we don't want anybody poking holes in our sacred things. Like, I get that. But what I'm suggesting is that Mormonism is truth. Joseph Smith once said that. And it means that wherever truth is, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us, like, we need to go and seek after it. And it's going to amend what we already think and believe. And sometimes we will have to make some changes in those sacred things we believe. Is there room for faith when this is all said and done? Absolutely. Absolutely there's room for faith. But but what good does it do if we wall put a wall around our beliefs, our sacred things, to the point where if someone offers us truth, we're unwilling to hear and listen to them? So Elder Jensen is saying, look, let's sit. Let's listen. Let's try to understand them. Let's understand what it is they're struggling with and why they're struggling with it. He says, sometimes that's enough. And I can validate that sometimes just somebody willing to listen and let you lay all this on the table is enough to have you keep going. He also says that we need to figure out a way to live a little bit with these folks. They may never get completely settled. Can we live with that? Can we be okay with that? And so I just want to emphasize that that's what Elder Marlon K. Jensen said. The next quote is from a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, M. Russell Ballard. M. Russell Ballard gave a a talk titled The Opportunities and Responsibilities of CES Teachers in the 21st Century And this was on February 26th of 2016. Elder Ballard said, quote, Gone are the days when a student asked an honest question and a teacher responded, don't worry about it. Gone are the days when a student raised a sincere concern and a teacher bore his or her testimony as a response intended to avoid the issue. And and unquote. I, I should just say too, again, just to stop and emphasize what Elder Ballard's saying, Often when somebody comes with a tough question, we tell them, don't worry about it. And Elder Ballard is saying, we can't do that anymore. Also, when people come with a sincere concern, we often bear testimony to them because we don't want to dive into these issues. We want to say, look, I've got faith. It's enough for me. Here's what I know. And I don't want to get into it. And Elder Ballard is saying, we can't do that anymore. We can't just push people off and say, look, I know the church is true. I don't want to address your questions. I'm just going to bear testimony to you and tell you not to worry about it. He says, gone are those days that there has to be a new way of handling it. And then throughout this, this talk that he gives, he suggests a new way. And he, he suggests that the, that we as members of the church stop for a moment, realize that there is lots of new information out there and that we begin to look into, read, study, and understand this new information. And he even suggests that the CES teachers know these things on LDS.org 
like the back of their hand. Let me read that quote to you. Speaking of the essays found on LDS.org that we're going to talk about today, Elder Ballard says, quote, It is important that you know the content in these essays like you know the back of your hand. If you have questions about them, then please ask someone who has studied them and understands them. In other words, seek learning, even by study and also by faith, as you master the content of these essays. He goes on to say, you should also become familiar with the Joseph Smith Papers website and the church history section on LDS.org and other resources by faithful LDS scholars. He says, the effort for gospel transparency and spiritual inoculation through a thoughtful study of doctrine and history, coupled with a burning testimony, is the best anecdote we have to help students avoid and or deal with questions, doubt, or faith crises that may, that they may face in this information age, unquote. And so Alder Ballard is saying we need to dive into this information. And so I hope today that we can go through some of these essays and we can talk about the information that's in them and validate what your loved one is discovering and then hope that maybe, just perhaps, you can let down your guard just enough to provide a safe space for this person to talk to you and maybe you can work with them in studying out these issues and helping them to discover answers. So with that, let's go into some of these. Today we're going to take a look at several narrative changes by using official sources from LDS.org, focusing mainly on the LDS.org gospel topic essays. What I mean by that is that our story is changing. As, as history comes to the surface in an internet age, the church is realizing that some of the pieces and parts that it has told its members are inaccurate. And it's beginning to make the shift to a more transparent and more accurate history. I, I know that you, and I know certainly I, we want to be accurate in the things we say. We don't want to say things that are untrue in church. We don't want to share ideas that don't hold up. And so today I hope you'll be open to, sh- to me sharing with you some of these narrative changes. The first essay I want to talk about is titled The Book of Mormon Translation. Now, I know recently there's been some discussion of this, and so maybe in your own mind you're beginning to make a shift. But in my 20 years in the church, it was very clear to me that the church presented a narrative that that Moroni, when showing Joseph Smith where the plates were buried in the Hill Cumorah in Palmyra, New York, that when this box is opened by Joseph to look inside and he sees the gold plates. He also sees in there other things. And one of those other things is what we, we call the Nephite interpreters or the Urim and Thummim. And it was taught to me, and I'm guessing to you, that Joseph used the Urim and Thummim or Nephite interpreters to translate the Book of Mormon. And we get that in lots of manuals. We get that in quotes from uh, witnesses to the translation, we get this even in a quote from Joseph Smith. And yet, as history has begun to surface and we've begun to really look at all of these statements and all of the historical data kind of sitting there all at once in context, we realize that the Nephite interpreters were only used, if at all, for only part of the 116 pages that were lost. And that at some point, Joseph decides to use another instrument 
And that instrument is a seer stone or what's called a peep stone. And this leads to other questions, which is where does Joseph get this seer stone or peep stone? Well, the reality of the story is that Joseph was heavily involved in treasure digging, even though we as a church tried to paint it, and Joseph Smith himself too, tried to paint it as something that he was only kind of dipping his toes into. But the reality is, as we've come to understand the history, is that Joseph Smith was heavily involved in treasure digging. And in 1819, one year before the first vision, Joseph gets his first seer stone. It's a white, opaque, uh, translucent seer stone. And he uses it to find lost items for people in the Palmyra area. And by 1822, while digging a well with Willard Chase, a friend from his boyhood, Joseph receives his second seer stone. And this seer stone is the brown, egg-shaped one that you've seen in the enzyme. And this is the one that was used to translate the Book of Mormon. And so while we have lots of artwork and lots of stories in the church that talk about Joseph translating with the Nephite interpreters, which may have been attached to a breastplate, the reality is the 531 pages of the Book of Mormon that we have today was translated with a seer stone or peep stone that Joseph got in his practice of treasure digging long before Moroni uh, allows him to take the plates out of the hill. And so the narrative that almost all members grew up with, that the Book of Mormon was translated by the Nephite interpreters, isn't accurate. And so members are having to make this shift to why did the church tell this story and why do we not talk about how heavily involved Joseph Smith was in treasure digging? And I think that the church's reasoning, I mean, the critics want to paint this as a really evil thing the church is doing. And and the faithful are kind of unaware that it's happened. But I think the reality is that when you dive into this deeper history, it's it's complex. It's messy. And it doesn't make for a simple story and certainly doesn't make for a simple faith-promoting story. And so I think the church has tried to present a simple story in order to build faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the reality is now that the information is so prevalent that we have to make this shift. So, for instance, there were times where Joseph Smith said, quote, there were two transparent stones set in the rim of a silver bow fastened to a breastplate, unquote. Also in the history of the church, the prophet Joseph Smith said, through the medium of the Urim and Thummim, translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. And, and members, because of the artwork, because of the quotes, because of the stories they were told in the concepts presented in the manual, walked away believing that the only tool used and the tool used for the actual translation of the Book of Mormon was the Nephite interpreters. But that's not accurate. The Nephite interpreters were almost assuredly not used for the translation of the 531 pages of the Book of Mormon text we have today. While church leaders are on record through our history saying that seer stones were evil, we now know it was the primary instrument of the translation of the Book of Mormon. And while all church artwork on the translation depicted certain ways in which that translation occurred, these were completely inaccurate. And so you're going to begin to see new artwork come out. I've already seen some of these pieces, and I expect in the next 10 to 15 years to see these become more prevalent. Even though at times it denied it, the church had the seer stone in the first presidency vault the whole time. Now, I grant that some church leaders may not have known that it was there 
But, but what we have to come to grips with is that some of them did. Some of them knew it was there and they said that we don't have any seer stone. And yet in the recent enzyme, you saw the church acknowledge in 2016 that the church has the seer stone used to translate the Book of Mormon in its possession. When we begin asking questions like, where did Joseph's seer stone come from? And did he have others? We're led into the history that shows that folk magic practiced by the Joseph Smith family, by his parents, by his siblings, and specifically Joseph Smith's treasure digging are extensive. And they run over the course of more than a decade. Much of this evidence can be interpreted uh, with Joseph at times being somewhat deceptive. And, and we have to be careful. Like, again, this history is messy and it's complex. As as you go into Google, if you were to type in uh, Mormon Hill uh, Cave, for instance, into a Google search and then click on images, some of the images you'll see are this gigantic dugout cave. And we often think that when Joseph is treasure digging, what's happened is that people like Josiah Stoll have hired him to dig for them to try and find treasure. But that's not what's going on. What's going on is that Josiah Stoll thinks there's treasure in his area. He's heard of Joseph Smith's abilities to find lost things. He hires Joseph Smith to lead up the treasure dig. And so Joseph would take a stone, put it in his white hat, bury his face into the hat, excluding all light, and then tell Josiah Stoll and the men with shovels where that treasure was, and those men would then dig. As they got closer to the treasure, Joseph would say, as he's looking into the hat, that the treasure is slipping away further into the earth. And so these men would dig and dig. And you often would think in your head, like, he's just digging like a four-foot hole, ten-foot down. But the reality is that they're digging into hills. And they're digging essentially giant caves. And this is a a strenuous thing. This is a the breadth of these digs, the the expansiveness of these digs is is huge. And so these aren't little projects. And Dan Vogel, a scholar of Mormonism, has ventured to say that there are at least 17 primary treasure digs in the Palmyra area by Joseph Smith and other treasure diggers, and that Joseph was heavily involved with many of these. And so my suggestion would be to go online, if if this is something that interests you, to go online and read about Joseph Smith's treasure digging. And I'm going to put this episode, this this program, um, on the web. And where it is, I will list tons of resources for each of these issues so that you can do your own reading and understanding of the data and the history. The the reason your loved one is struggling is because they're asking themselves in their in their head, why did we give preference of the Nephite interpreter's mode of translation over the actual translation method of a peep stone in a hat? And that question compels us to dig into why we would have done that. And and that question can be problematic. And so your loved one is having a struggle over not only this narrative change, but why this narrative change wasn't told correctly to begin with. Now, again, these essays are found on LDS.org. The second essay we're going to talk about is the essay on the first vision accounts. Until recently, we've only emphasized the official 1838 account. You know the one. It's the one that you likely, if you went on a mission, memorized, right? Where Joseph starts off saying, during this time of great excitement, my mind is called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. 
and though my feelings were deep and often poignant, still I kept myself aloof from the various parties. In process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, and I felt some desire to be united with them. But so great was the confusion and strife among the different denominations that it was impossible for a person as young as I, and so unacquainted with men and things, to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. And then Joseph talks about finding uh, James chapter 1, verse 5, right? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And Joseph goes into the grove of trees as a 14-year-old boy and prays to know which church to join and is told in a heavenly vision where Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ appear and where God points over to the Savior and says, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then Joseph is told not to join any of the churches and that in time he will be an instrument in the hands of God. This is the 1838 account. To understand this issue, we need to know not only that there are four accounts that are considered first-hand accounts by Joseph Smith, but also what they contain in the history behind their being publicly known. The 1832 account, it's, it's the earliest account. You've likely never heard of this. The only account we've ever talked about is the 1838 account, the one that's officially used. But the earliest account is in 1832. It's the only account we have in Joseph Smith's own handwriting, and it's written in his own personal journal. In other words, there's no audience intended. This is his personal journal, and he writes down in his own handwriting his experience uh, early in his religious life, including the first vision. The second account is in 1835. Joseph shares his first vision account with a stranger who goes by the name of Joshua the Jewish Minister. This, this is kind of a strange guy. He, he claims to be Matthias the Apostle re- resurrected, um, or reincarnated. And he's kind of a strange guy. He lives with the, the Smiths for a couple of days. And while he's there, him and Joseph go back and forth sharing their religious experiences. And other folks in the home are kind of writing these down and recording it. And so it's the 1835 account of the first vision. This is where we get it from. There's also the 1838, but we don't really know exactly that it happened in 38. Some scholars have debated that it may have actually come in 1839. This is the official account we first started talking about. And the one thing that should be noted here is that scholars are debating right now in Mormonism whether Joseph is actually the author of the language of the 1838 account. And many, including Richard Bushman, who's a a, a prominent scholar in Mormonism, former stake president, uh, patriarch in the church that uh, Richard Bushman and other scholars are debating right now whether possibly Joseph didn't even formulate this 1838 narrative and that instead Sidney Rigdon or George Robinson did. It's not Joseph Smith's writing style. It's not in his handwriting. And and so the best guess is that Sidney Rigdon or George Robinson heavily influenced how this story in the 1838 account is told. And then the last one is the 1842 account It's in the Wentworth letter, which you may have heard at some point in your time in the church. And essentially, it's just a a summation of the 1838 account put into uh, writing so that some newspapers abroad could get uh, a little bit of the Mormon story and share it with their audience. And so those are the four what we call firsthand accounts. There's also several secondhand accounts as well. Uh, For me, those aren't as interesting. And essentially, the... The essay on LDS.org is just covering these four first-hand accounts. We, we should realize that there's differences between the official 1838 account 
and these other accounts, and specifically the 1832 account. In the 1832 account, Joseph's motives are different. He's not looking for the true church. Rather, he's only looking for forgiveness of his own sin. His motives for going into the grove are, are personal. They're not, they're not trying to work out what church I should join or is there a true church on the earth. Rather, it's simply to get forgiveness of his sins. There's no mention of pondering which church is true. His experience is different too. He doesn't mention that Heavenly Father and Jesus both appear. He says, the Lord opened the heavens and I saw the Lord. And it seems, it appears that he's indicating that he only had an experience with one member of the Godhead. And so, so some have, have had their eyebrows raised as they realize some of these differences. There's nothing in the 1832 account about religious excitement in the area. There's nothing about Satan's presence or his effort to try and stop Joseph from praying. And there's nothing from Jesus or the Lord in his response to Joseph about the gospel being restored. It's simply a boy worried about his own salvation, his own sin, seeking out forgiveness. There's three issues that your loved one is running into as they're beginning to see that there are these four firsthand accounts. They're all slightly different. And in trying to reconcile that with the story of the 1838 account that they were told, number one is that we intentionally hid the 1832 account until rumor got out in 1965. Here's what happened. Joseph Fielding Smith, future prophet of the church, in 1921, he is a, uh, I think he's a general authority, and he's called as church historian. He's called to hold the same office that Stephen R. Snow that we quoted earlier holds today. Joseph Fielding Smith called as church historian in 1921, shortly thereafter, maybe a few years later, discovers Joseph Smith's personal journal in the church historian uh, vault or area. And he reads it. And he finds this firsthand account written in Joseph Smith's handwriting that's a peculiar account, much different than the 1838 account. And sadly, unfortunately, Joseph Fielding Smith takes a penknife and cuts this first vision account out and then puts it into a church historian's vault. And it stays there until rumor gets out in 1965, at which point he takes it back out of the church historian's vault and tapes it back into the journal and begins to ask uh, faithful members at, at BYU to write about this first vision account so that they can get the jump on talking about it before the critics do. Number two, we framed the first vision as important to our theology and history. Joseph Smith didn't see it that way. He didn't talk about the first vision. The church didn't talk about the first vision. Many of the prophets shortly after uh, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, John Taylor, don't mention the first vision at all. Joseph Smith publicly doesn't mention it at all. In fact, the church doesn't use the first vision at all until the 1940s. And then we don't actually use it in our proselyting until 1961. The first vision was seen by Joseph as a private experience, not to be used in the conversion of, of people to the church, but rather just a personal experience between him and God. Number three is that scholars and church historians are at the present moment debating whether the 1832 account was closer to Joseph's real experience. The conversation is whether we should put more weight on the 1832 account rather than the 1838 account. 
Richard Bushman, the scholar I mentioned earlier, says this in regards to this 1832 account, quote, I'm very much impressed by Joseph Smith's 1832 history account of his early visions. This is the one partially written in his own hand and the rest dictated to Frederick G. Williams. I think it is more revealing than the official account, presumably written in 1838 and contained in the Pearl of Great Price. We don't know who wrote the 1838 account. Joseph's journal indicates that he, Sidney Rigdon, and George Robinson collaborated on beginning the history in late April, but we don't know who actually drafted the history. It is a polished narrative, but unlike anything Joseph ever wrote himself. The 1832 history we know is his because of the handwriting. It comes rushing forth from Joseph's mind in a gush of words that seem artless and uncalculated, a flood of raw experience. I think this account has the marks of an authentic visionary experience. There is the distance from God, the perplexity and yearning for answers, the perplexity and the experience itself which brings intense joy, followed by fear and anxiety. Can he deal with the powerful force he has encountered? Is he worthy and able? It is a classic announcement of a prophet's call, and I find it entirely believable. So to wrap up this issue, we should recognize that there are other accounts of the first vision out there. And while we have spent years and years and years in manuals, in lessons, in talks, saying what happened and what didn't happen, bearing testimony of what happened and what didn't happen, the reality is that what happened may be slightly different than the things that we have attested to. And so again, your loved one is having to come to grips with the fact that they stood up in testimony meeting and they said, I know with every fiber of my being that Joseph Smith saw God the Father and Jesus Christ. And the reality is that that may not have been how the first vision occurred. And so many of the members of the church today are wrestling with the 1832 account of the first vision and having to ask themselves what really happened to Joseph that day in the grove. What happened as he went out there seeking God and asking for answers to his prayers? What was that experience? And maybe having to let go of some of the certainty that the story they were told in the 1838 account may not be the way in which this first vision occurred. Essay number three is the Book of Mormon and DNA Studies. Again, these are essays found on LDS.org. We used to hold the position that the Lamanites are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. And there's scriptures and other official sources that, that point to this, Encyclopedia of Mormonism, the Wentworth Letter, etc. And we stated this over and over and over again, that we have looked at Native Americans, and we've gone further than that, right? Samoans, Mexicans, Hawaiians, any, any kind of Polynesian, Pacific Islanders, and we've said those are Lamanites. And we have given them that label. If you were one of those groups and you were a member of the church, we told you you were a Lamanite. We taught you you were a Lamanite. And you were taught that your identity as whatever those other things were, Mexican, Native American, Polynesian, that those were fallen labels. So those were labels that you had as a fallen person as you fell away from God and that your real label, the real thing you were was a Lamanite. And, and so we, we kind of contributed to these people shifting in how they saw their themselves in their ethnicity and their history, and their tribes, and we've, we've changed their identity. But the current position of the church is that the Lamanites are among the ancestors of the American Indians. And this may seem like a really small change, but it isn't. 
the church now acknowledges that 99.999% of all Native American DNA is of Asiatic origin and that there are no certainties regarding that other point zero 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 one. We have relinquished our ability to hold certainty and to point to someone and say there is a Lamanite. So whereas before we told Native Americans, Mexicans, Samoans, Hawaiians, and any other person with tan skin that they were a Lamanite, today we can no longer with certainty say such. In other words, if we stood before us a line of Samoans, Mexicans, Polynesians, Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders, and Native Americans, and we asked a leader in the church among the top 15 to point to these people standing before them and point out the ones that are Lamanites and the ones that are not, we can no longer do so. And so some of the damage we did to these people's identities, like it was wrong now, we realized that. We shouldn't have labeled all these people Lamanites. Not only did we do some damage to their identity, but there's a theological conundrum now too, which is that the Book of Mormon is written. It's its mission. It's one of its primary missions is that it is written to the Lamanites to help bring them back. And the struggle now is that we no longer can locate or, or with any level of certainty know who is a Lamanite and who isn't. And because we've lost that ability to know who is a Lamanite, and who isn't, we have to kind of reconcile who the Book of Mormon was writ to, written to and why it was written to them when we can no longer locate who they are and where they are. This becomes problematic. Essay number four found on LDS.org is the Race and Priesthood Essay. In the past, 15 prophets, seers, and revelators generation after generation taught officially and unofficially that people with dark skin were less valiant in the premortal life that interracial marriage was sin, and that these folks had a curse placed upon them, and their skin color was the sign of that curse, and that these teachings were from God and were his doctrine. Today, though, the church has shifted. We used to teach those things, that people who were of African descent or had dark skin were cursed and less valiant in the premortal life, that they had a curse of Cain, that interracial marriage was sin, and that they had done something to offend God in the premortal life, that they were given this skin color as a sign of the curse that they hold. But today, the church says, quote, in this essay, quote, today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past, that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a premortal life that mixed-race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. So to recognize like this shift, and it's happened in lots of places, in the heading for the 1978 Revelation on Priesthood, Online, don't go into your old scriptures, but in new sets of scriptures that if you were to order today, or if you go online to LDS.org and look at it, I think it's official declaration number two, which came in 1978, you'll see that the heading is different from your old scriptures, and it essentially says that we have no idea now where the priesthood ban came from. And that's a huge step from what prophets, seers, and revelators testified to generation after generation. So here's the implications. The church has never said sorry for the hurt that it caused through its racism. Sure, it's disavowed it now, but it's never apologized 
for the hurt that it caused over the course of a century or more. The church has altered scriptures and headings to imply that skin color never was a curse, and that when scriptures mentioned dark skin, it was a figurative statement of unrighteousness. White and delightsome, for instance, was changed in 1981 to pure and delightsome. Lamanites and Nephites could not be distinguished by skin color based on present theology, where the words dark skin refer not to actual skin color, but are figurative of unrighteousness. Leaders, even united, all 15 prophets, seers, and revelators, generation after generation, can be 100% wrong about very serious issues that damage others, even when they are sure it is from God. And lastly, that Jesus strangely can sit back while his leaders cause great harm with false doctrine being taught throughout his church. Can the church be led astray, even if only for a while, would be the question that your loved one is struggling with and asking themselves. This is a complicated issue, and it forces us to kind of come to grips with the fact that prophets, seers, and revelators united, all 15 men, generation after generation, can get very serious things wrong that deeply hurt and harm and marginalize others. Essay number five. The Translation and Historicity of the Book of Abraham. We were previously taught that Joseph Smith found papyri with mummies in which he stated that they were the writings of Abraham, unquote. And Joseph proceeded to translate the papyri and the facsimiles. He also stated that these writings were, quote, written by the hand of Abraham or, quote, written by his own hand, unquote. Today, the church acknowledges that the papyri we have is a common Egyptian funerary text, unrelated to Abraham. The data says that it is near impossible for this papyri to be connected to Abraham. In the essay, if you read it, the translation and historicity of the book of Abraham, you'll notice that the church is saying, look, the scholars are saying, you know, ABC, that essentially this papyri is unrelated to Abraham and is a common funerary text. And here are five different ways to reconcile that. Here's the struggle. There are really deep problems with all five reconciliations to the point that the church needs to offer five, right? That if you offer five answers to a problem, you're kind of acknowledging that you really don't have one answer, that each of these reconciliations has issues and and really don't work out that well when taken uh, as a whole. And when looked at, when each one is looked at individually and when looked at in their totality, we simply have to come to grips that this is problematic. That the book of Abraham, while certainly accepted as scripture within our faith, that how we got it, how people told us we got it, and, and where the actual end of the, at the end, the scripture comes from, we don't know. And the things we said no longer are holding up. Here's some of the problems with the book of Abraham translation. Joseph translates the facsimiles. They're found in our Pearl of Great Price. The problem is Joseph translates them incorrectly. Second is that Joseph was not accurate saying that these were the writings of Abraham or written by his own hand. That is an inaccurate statement. These papyri, to the best of our knowledge and understanding and based on the scholarship, are completely unrelated to the prophet Abraham. Number three, every apologetic response has deep flaws. 
The two thrown out the most often are the catalyst theory and the missing scroll theory. We do know that some of the scroll is missing. And so some uh, apologists within the church, people who try to offer faithful answers to the problems, say that if we had this missing scroll, it would contain the book of Abraham. The trouble is that the pieces of the scroll we do have contain the facsimile and characters that we know Joseph Smith was working with. The other answer is this catalyst theory, which is the idea that the papyri was only a catalyst for Joseph Smith to essentially have a conversation with God and receive the book of Abraham from Heavenly Father, but unrelated to the papyri other than it got Joseph thinking and asking God to give him some divine revelation. The trouble with the catalyst theory is that the facsimiles are on these scrolls and Joseph is translating these facsimiles as part of his book of Abraham translation. In other words, there are very serious flaws with any apologetic answer we give to try and reconcile this problem. In the end, our best answer is to focus on the book of Abraham text we have today in our canon, to understand that it is scripture, and to simply avoid trying to reconcile how we got it or the translation of it, because we are clueless as to what happened and it's full of problems. The next issue that we want to talk about is essay number six, Becoming Like God. This one's simple. Simply put, we used to teach that we would become gods and receive our own planets. And with this essay and the Mormon newsroom, we can clearly no longer claim that. For instance, the Mormon newsroom says, do Latter-day Saints believe they will get their own planet? No. This idea is not taught in Latter-day Saint scripture, nor is it a doctrine of the church, Mormon newsroom. And the essay, Becoming Like God, also emphasizes the same thing. So for us as Mormons, what does the afterlife entail? Well, we're, we're now less certain about what that is than what leaders used to proclaim and what we used to believe. And so we have to let go of some of that certainty, and we don't really know maybe what heaven looks like or what kind of responsibilities it entails. Essay number seven is the manifesto and the end of plural marriage. We used to teach that polygamy ended in 1890 when Wilford Woodruff issued the manifesto where we taught that Wilford Woodruff received a revelation that commanded him to end plural marriage. Today, we acknowledge that polygamy continued in secret long past 1890, with evidence strongly suggesting it continued to at least 1911, with leaders being dishonest about its practice and their initial hope it would return. We also should recognize that there's problems with the early practice of polygamy. The New and Everlasting Covenant, mentioned in section 132, was taught in the early church theologically to be polygamy. Now we teach that it's eternal marriage, or the gospel as a whole. This was not early leaders' interpretation. Plural marriage was taught as essential to exaltation. John Taylor, third president of the church, received a revelation in 1886, which we no longer associate with. In that revelation, Jesus Christ speaks to John Taylor in the first person. It starts off saying, John, my son. In this revelation, John Taylor is told by the Lord Jesus Christ that the new and everlasting covenant is polygamy and that it is to never be done away with. Of course, four years later, Wilfred Woodruff initiates the ending of plural marriage, though again, it didn't actually end until around 1911. The church's honesty 
is on the line here slightly in terms of the narrative it told the public and the narrative it told its members. It told the public and it told its members that polygamy had ended and that the new and everlasting covenant was never meant to be plural marriage, but rather was the gospel of Jesus Christ or eternal marriage and not plural marriage. When we go back into the history, we realize it's a different story. And when we look at the fact that we've totally dismissed John Taylor's 1886 revelation, that calls into question lots of things that your loved one is struggling with. This also adds to the confusion when we dive deeper into polygamy with essay number eight, titled Plural Marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo. This essay informs us of the following, that Joseph was sealed to women as young as 14 that Joseph was sealed to women who were already married to other men, that Joseph was sealed to women who were sisters or mother and daughter without the other one knowing that he had been sealed to both of them, and the fact that many of these relationships were sexual, and to top it off, that Emma was not aware of many of these sealings, and that Joseph had initiated these sexual relationships outside of the knowledge of Emma, and at times without her consent. Here's some of the problems we encounter when we study the early history of Joseph Smith's polygamy. Joseph seems to get involved with young girls who work in his home as maids. Several of the young girls that Joseph has himself sealed to worked in his home as a maid. Secondly, that he seals himself to sisters and mothers and daughters unbeknownst to each other. On one occasion, he seals himself to two sisters, does not get Emma's permission, does not tell her he's doing it, and then a short time later, he has a second sealing with these same girls, simply so that Emma can think that it happened with her approval later on. Other problems is that, again, Joseph is sealed to multiple underage girls, one as young as 14, another at 15. And it should be noted that both Emma Smith and Oliver Cowdery both believed his first relationship outside of Emma was an affair. It was with a young lady named Fanny Elger, who was working as a maid in the Joseph Smith home. This relationship that Joseph had with her happened before the sealing keys to perform eternal marriages was given to Joseph. So scholars are wrestling with how could Joseph Smith begin doing eternal marriages before the keys of eternal marriage and the command to do it comes. And and so people have begun to try and figure out ways to reconcile that. But again, for the, your loved one, this is problematic. It also should be noted that, that something happened between Joseph and Fanny Elger uh, in, in a barn. It, it could have been a ceiling, But Emma and Oliver Cowdery both, again, believed that this relationship was an affair. Oliver Cowdery called it something like a filthy, nasty scrape. And Emma was uh, deeply upset for days on end over whatever it was that occurred behind those barn doors. The last issue is number nine. This is an uh, essay number nine, Joseph Smith's teachings about priesthood, temple, and women. This essay clearly explains that women of the church were given by Joseph Smith a key to the priesthood. They were authorized to give anointed blessings, and the church was admonished to not get in the way of their carrying this out. In other words, women were permitted by Joseph and given a key of the priesthood to perform blessings 
and to carry out their responsibilities within the Relief Society. And when I say give blessings, I mean using oil, anointing the body, laying on hands, and performing a blessing that that was deeply similar to the use of priesthood. And at some point, the church did away with this. The church stopped the sisters from performing blessings, stopped the sisters from from participating in anything that resembled priesthood. And what your loved one is likely asking themselves is that, you know, where did this revelation come from to end it? Like we have Joseph instructing the sisters that God wants them to do it and that none of us should get in the way of them performing these rituals. And yet we've stopped it and we seem to have stopped it without a revelation to have ceased this practice. And so while women may not have offices, women do have priesthood and we need to change the way we speak of priesthood in regards to it being a male thing. Elder Oaks gave a talk in General Conference a few years back where he talked about the women of the church having priesthood power and priesthood authority. So in the end, the only solution a leader offers to someone who has completely lost trust and deconstructed Mormonism is to do what Elder Ballard said not to, which is to impose testimony of spiritual experiences that that leader has had or perhaps that they are calling on the person who's struggling, who's lost faith that they've had. But this is, but this too is problematic for your loved one. And it, and for them feels like a weak position. There, there are several videos, videos out there on YouTube where you can watch people of various faiths and the spiritual experiences that they have that people, whether they're members of the FLDS fundamentalist breakoff groups of our church that practice polygamy still, whether you're talking about different fringe groups like the Jim Jones group that took Kool-Aid and killed themselves or Heaven's Gate, which killed themselves, whether you're talking about Scientology, whether you're talking about Jehovah Witnesses, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, and tons of other uh, religions out there, that the reality is that the members of those religions have spiritual experiences and can attest to the truth of their faith of their church of their religious experience in the same way that we as latter-day saints do and so to call on someone to say like i have a testimony i know this church is true isn't really a problem solver for the one who's struggling so we need to set our testimony um aside again not let it go but set it off to the side it's not going to be a way of convincing our loved one to come back or to regain faith that instead, we have to deal with these issues head on, and we have to come up with answers to them. In summary, this happens to the most faithful members of the church. These aren't people who were half in. These are people who were all in. Second, there's a severe loss of trust and feelings of betrayal here. Another is that there are thousands of other issues right behind the ones we have talked about today, issues that we have not even touched on here. Another one is, and Stephen R. Snow, again, he says this, that leaders are still not being completely transparent, that there still is things that we need to be better on sharing information on, and that leaders still won't attempt to answer these tough questions. You will not find the top 15 men addressing these issues. They don't have good answers to the problems that we've presented. The, the, the only thing that could be said is we don't know, and they're not even saying that. Once the entire story comes apart, once the theology is discovered to have these issues throughout and one's community refuses to engage correcting the narrative openly, your loved one is left with their choice to slowly or abruptly disengage from their faith. This is sad. There are solutions, though. These are the solutions to your loved one. 
Validate that our history is a mess and that there are real problems and that these problems are damaging to faith. Don't try to solve their crisis with asking them to pray or to read scriptures more. And don't ask them to reflect on their spiritual experiences. Don't attribute their loss of faith to sin. In other words, don't brush off their problem of it being caused by something they did or did not do. Validate that the church caused this, and now it's up to all of us to fix it. Another one is that we should never tell people to not study and read source material with the threat that it's going to be evil anti-Mormon, regardless of whether it's official or not. In other words, do not impose that only church publications can be trusted. The reality is the church admittedly has held back lots of information, and much of the stuff your loved one is reading online is not anti-Mormon false stuff. Instead, it is true facts and data. We can debate the conclusions, we can conversate about the conclusions, but we should never turn someone off to reading and studying. The fact is that much of what your loved one is reading is just that, facts. Another one is to create and nourish an environment where truth is valued over the comfortable stories we tell ourselves. We should assign these issues as sacrament talks, encourage teachers to introduce them in lessons, public and private conversations that value tough questions, and honest, vulnerable conversations. We should be selecting teachers who can best implement this info and who can answer questions on these issues or at the very least comfortably say, I don't know. In the last one, what was once anti-Mormon in years past is now the gospel topic essays of LDS.org today. With compassion and with love, we need to help correct the narrative. May I finish with a quote from Richard Bushman, who we spoke about earlier. He says, I think that for the church to remain strong, it has to reconstruct its narrative. The dominant narrative is not true. It can't be sustained. The church has to absorb all this new information or it will be on very shaky ground. And that's what it's trying to do. And it will be a strain for a lot of people, older people especially. But I think it has to change. May I end by simply saying that your loved one's struggle is real. It's my prayer that you can have empathy and compassion and understanding, and most importantly, again, that you can give safe space to validate and to have a conversation. That's my prayer. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love I raise my Ebenezer Here by thy great help I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger 
Wandering from the fold of God, He to rescue me from danger, interposed His precious blood. From sinning, I shall see Thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing Thy sovereign grace! Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send Thy name. Now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let Thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above.